the industry has been through so much change. The industry is so supportive of, you know, every restaurateur, every chef, every, you know, every wait staff, every sommelier that's within it. So the ability for us to progress, to move forward and to change and to make positive change in the industry, no time like the present to do it. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Working under great mentors can provide the building blocks of opportunity. And taking that next step to showcase your own talent can be intimidating for some. But unless you walk through the door, you'll never know the benefits and rewards of carving your own career. Rasheen Cole is the head chef of ETA in Melbourne. Rasheen, how are you? I'm really good. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for coming on the show. You've you've really sort of made a real name for yourself and uh, in your role at ETA. But what was it like for you taking that role when you first sort of um, accepted the job? Um, well, it actually took quite a lot of convincing um, and I was terrified. Um, and I mean, in a lot of ways, I still am actually, but it's just I'm scared of different things now. <laughs> Well, you've really made it your own. Take us back to that time and, and you know, you said it, take a, it took a little bit of time. Take us through that process and the doubts that you had and then what finally got you over the line. Um, well, I did. Um, actually, the timing is pretty good. I did an international Women's Day dinner at ETA with the previous head chef um, in 2020. Um, and that's where I met um, my delightful boss and the owner of ETA, Hannah Green. Um and yeah, so we had, you know, some lovely, friendly interactions, not too much more beyond that. Um, and in 2020, I wrote a zine with a friend of mine, Joanna Hu. We, um, we got a, quite a bit of publicity for it because it was a, um, a very cool, very aptly named Isolation cookbook. Um, and because there was a little bit of press, I think I may have caught um, Hannah's attention and she cold called me uh, in October, no, October, sorry, in August of 2020, uh, offering me the position because she she hadn't forgotten me, basically, in her own words, but more than anything else was I think she just was quite interested to just chat further and just see if she could find a personality that she could work with and just have as the right person, I guess, to be with her in that, in that restaurant, in that space. Um, and she had it, she was convinced that it was me. Um, but I wasn't so easily convinced. <laughs> yeah. Because I had only actually been in, uh, I'd only actually been promoted to chef to party at dinner by Heston before I had, um, lost my job there due to the closure. So I was, you know, I was at best, I was a mid-level chef and I had still plenty, plenty to learn. I still have obviously much to learn, um, in terms of honing my skill as a chef. And so that was, that was the major, that was my major concern. That was my major stop. And also I hadn't, I hadn't run a team. I hadn't run a kitchen. I hadn't, you know, basically I hadn't any of the experience that I wanted before I finally took the reins of my own kitchen. You know, I, I couldn't see it for at least, you know, eight to 10 years from now, basically. Um, <laughs> very, very much not ready. And uh, it was, it was actually basically, it was, it was the conversation really went, um, thank you so much, but no, <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> um, but uh, it was over a course of a few phone calls um, and she basically wore me down in, 
she was basically like, have you written a menu before? And I was like, yes, I have. It's like, have you run a team before? How many chefs do you look after at dinner? I was like, any one time, six to seven in my section. And she was like, cool, Edda's only got four chefs. One of them is you. And I was like, all right. <laughs> she was like, have you costed a menu before? I was like, yes, I have. And she was like, that's your whole job. Anything else I can teach you. And I was like, mm, okay. But <laughs> I mean, it was a really, it was a really, um, a beautiful way to simplify what it is that I do. But, you know, as I've obviously come to learn, it's significantly more than that <laughs> in my day to day. But, you know, if, when she put it that way, I was like, oh, I don't know, I guess. She's like, look, just come cook for me. Um, and I ended up doing a, um, did a lunch for 12 people, including, you know, the head chef at Hazel, a few other unexpected industry big dogs that I did not expect to see. Um, a lunch she was happy and she offered me the position and here we are <laughs> yeah what was it like then once you started the role you know with your sort of apprehension to take it on at first but once you sort of got in there and sort of got your hands on the tools um how did it feel did you was there a time when you felt like yeah I've got a handle of this and this is kind of quite an exciting journey um no and I <laughs> <laughs> I mean it would it would be there, there have been times when um, I have felt that, you know, I think this is this is under control now, but then there'll be one curveball after another. Obviously, of course, we all lived through last year um, and, you know, with persistent closures, staff shortages, constantly, I mean, we'll use that word pivoting as we love, constantly pivoting to take away. Um, there was never really that time to sort of get momentum going. Um, but I think the key for me has been finding the right people and more than anything else, just having and keeping the staff that were the right ones who were, and because initially it was just a matter of getting hands in, just, you know, get whoever you can um, and just get, just get this place going because, you know, of course we'd been closed for far too long and we just needed to, we just needed bums on seats again. And it was, it was hard, but the, it was a baptism by fire truly. And it was, Somehow it was, we had a really, really, we do have a very supportive local um, community and they were just keen to be back. They were keen to see who, they were wondering who was cooking. They just wanted to know who I was and that sheer amount of support and the amount of people would just come to the past and be like, this is great. This is your first time. This is great. Who are you? <laughs> and <laughs> um, So it was, it was really just because I had that, amount of support from everybody, the front of house, the people in the kitchen, from Hannah, especially Hannah. Um, I never felt that I was, you know, drowning, but it was, it was my own, I think it was my own pride and my own um, desperation to do, to do as well as I could. That was what made it truly difficult. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Well, you've really made the position your own and I want to explore what you're doing at Etta in a little while, but Take us back to when you were young in, in, in your family. Sort of what role did food play in your family? Well, I'm of mixed Asian heritage. My mom and my dad met in Singapore, but my dad is from Kashmir. My mom is further on again. She's um, of Peranakan Chinese, um, a little bit of Indonesian, a little Filipino, just very mixed, we're a very mixed family. I was born in Singapore as well. And food has been sort of the unifying thread for my family and also just the way that we we bond, we show love, we communicate. My parents are both excellent cooks. 
um, and I was a pretty gluttonous little child. So it's always been a very, <laughs> very joyful, uh, very positive experience for me eating. I love it so much. I really, I associate it with a lot of love um, and very much a lot of identity. So I, with the way that I cook now, it's just a matter of trying to reconcile my identity with food. Um, and it's, yeah, it's very much, it's, it, it runs, it runs deep and it's, but it's also just a really, really, it's a really happy, really beautiful thing. I love, I love the, um, exposure that I've had through my family. Do you have any stories of, um, feasts or celebrations or dishes that you have fond memories of from your childhood? Well, the beautiful thing about being from such a multicultural family and my family are practicing Hindus as well. So we have, and we celebrate, um, the major Hindu festivals. So we've got Diwali. Shivratri. We all have um, there are f- there are dishes that we all cook um, for the because um, we will fast pure vegetarian, which means no onion, no garlic. Um, so we'll do. So my dad will cook a spread of seven to eight. Sometimes if he's feeling, <laughs> I'll do it nine, ten dishes. Um, very specific Kashmiri vegetarian dishes during the fasting day, um, and he won't eat, of course, until sunset. But the family will all eat, and then the next day we'll have. Um, a, another day, another feasting day of same amount of meat dishes. And these are all dishes that have a specific significance. And we'll do this for, it will just every year. It's a, it's a thing that just, that we do. And very, it's the time of year that I'm expected to also be at home. <laughs> um, day I'll take a day off work, take the night off. You have to be here. Um, and then from my mom's side, you know, of course we've got Chinese new year. So we have, you know, as all of the related festivities, we do the Yisang, we'll do, ideally we try to be home in Singapore and eat all the symbolic dishes you're supposed to eat. So I really get, I get all of that, you know, I got I get all of the food from all of the cultures. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty special. It's pretty special. <laughs> With, with such a special and rich sort of connection with food in your family, did, did you always envisage a career in food? Absolutely not. I was <laughs> – no way. I mean, I'm uh, – I mean, I was, I was trying to be a good Asian girl, you know, go to university, get a good job, you know, make my parents proud via one of the very acceptable career paths of, you know, doctor, lawyer, engineer, some sort of science – um, and I, I did, I gave it a red hot go. I did. I really did. But, um, I just, <laughs> my, my mom made a fleeting comment one day because I was, I was really struggling at uni. I changed my course a couple of times and I just wasn't, I was a bit lost really. And she made a comment one day where she was like, if you, once you finish uni, you can do whatever you want. And I'd had it in my head that I wanted to get into a kitchen because it kind of made the most sense for me because I wasn't really interested in anything else as much as I was in eating. So that was, you know, if you went, if I worked backwards for what I didn't want to do and what I did want to do in the day, I was like, well, I only really take, like, you know, look forward to my meals. So let's just associate that. Let's make that a career. <laughs> and so, you know, I took that as a, okay, I took that as a blessing and I got a kitchen hand job a week later to their horror, <laughs> to their absolute horror. <laughs> Um, and yeah, it's, and I loved it. I loved because I was a dishy and I, it actually, I really struggled to get a dishy job too, because my previous place of employment was Jimmy Choo. So I was working in luxury fashion. Um, so, it was, <laughs> so I would drop resumes off and they would just look at me and be like, are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, yeah, so but I eventually, I eventually got one, um, and it was it was fantastic. It was a great it was a great um, foot into the into the door, really. <laughs> what were the really important moments early on, and and important kitchens that you worked in in those first couple of years that sort of started to build a foundation for you? Um, actually, now that I think back, that first cafe that I worked with is where I first experienced. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, a real support for attitude where the owners and the owner's parents were, even though they knew that I was as green as I could go, I was so excited to just be chopping things and unplugging the drain and learning what a grease trap was. <laughs> and I was just, I, I was just having a great time. And I think because I was having a, probably a really irritating great time because they were struggling a bit. Um, I think because of that, they were like, let's just keep her around because she's just really keen to do all this dirty stuff. <laughs> um, and that was, that was, the, that was the first time I was like, I think this can actually be something that I want to do because I can see that, you know, if you have the right people around you, then, you know, you can, what would be, I guess, in a lot of ways, a very difficult, very stressful time in your day is actually, it could be really fun. And from then I went to, I decided to pursue a formal, pursue formal training. So I went to join Leho Fook, which was just down the road to where I was working. That was when it was um, on Smith Street at the time. So Victor was only a year, a year in. So it was still very young, very aggressively trying to make its mark on Melbourne. Um, and I joined that kitchen as a first year apprentice and I learned so much. I learned, I think probably even though I had a lot more formal training at dinner by Heston, I think in terms of how it's informed the way that I use my heritage in my cooking, but via my European training, I think I still and I still use those those skills that I learned from that kitchen every day, enormously. Wow. Yeah. Um, Victor Leong has made it made a huge impact uh, on the culinary landscape since then. But what was it like in that kitchen, and what was he like to work with? Well, it was it was pretty it was a pretty aggressive kitchen, but at the same time we were we had it was like during during the day it wasn't too bad it was it was it was quite nice the team was really lovely and we had these magnificent staff meals in in a very because it was a fully asian kitchen and we you know that was the way that we show affection in asian culture as well so we had these we always ate in traditional chinese style we always had rice a few dishes and soup and it was all there was a lot of care and there was a lot of there was a lot of heckling like it was actually it was all in good fun and then of course when i got to service it was you know just the stress levels were turned to a million um and then it got pretty pretty intense. But beyond that, it was it was a it was a really fantastic kitchen to work in. I learned I truly I learned so much. I learned how to sharpen my knives there. I learned the importance of cooking for your staff. I learned the importance of you know you can be you know you can, you can be aggressive is not the word that I'm looking for, but you can be quite short and quite you know you need, if you need to get your job done, you need to get a job done. But you know that you do you put it all away. You stop that the second service is over. You know, you go around, you thank everybody, you have a drink together because it's not personal. And that ability to turn it on and off as well, because you know it's service time, put your head down, get your job done. But after that, it's like nothing's personal, you know, everything's fine. <laughs> We're all mates. <laughs> what were some of the real sort of key moments uh, for you that set you on the path um, to become the chef that you are? Um, I think that the the real the real foundation of my training came from dinner by Heston. I 
managed to get um, a foot in the door there. I was the first apprentice they ever hired. Um, and it was, th- I mean, that kitchen was, it was magnificent. The The team was, it was a fully international team. There was only a sprinkling of Australians there. And, you know, everyone's resumes read like a 50 best list. It was just, it was out of this world. And every chef that was there either was an expert on something very particular or they knew the menu inside out. They knew the history of the, of the food inside out. They just, they were just, it was such a well-educated, motivated team. And, you know, we were all just trying to outcook each other every day. Uh, it was, it was, it was a really, really, really difficult job. You know, we were, we had massive days and you, you, before you'd walk in the door, you would inhale, exhale, and then get in there and start running. <laughs> it was, it was a lot. It was a lot. And, you know, you learn that, you know, no matter what, no matter how busy you are, there is no excuse for making mistakes. There's no, there's, there's no imperfection. There's nothing that will accept that except aside from the best, because every customer could be dining there for the very first time. And so you owe them the best experience they could have, because even though it's a repetitive job for you, it's, you know, somebody's, you know, experienced this magic for, you know, they could have saved up for it, could have flown in for it from somewhere else. You know, so you owe them that. And, you know, we had that really driven into, like, drilled into our heads, really, that it's not about you, it's about them. Because people, you know, for some, a lot of people, especially for Heston Blumenthal's food, you know, people have been, <clears throat> excuse me, people would be chasing the chef all over the world, being like, I would, I one day, I just really, really, really want to eat this food. And when you get there and you're like, sorry, I don't have these three dishes because the chefs didn't make it today, <laughs> you know, it's pretty disappointing. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so there was there was no there was never there was no excuse there was no excuse for anything but the best. There was yeah. Dinner by Heston ended up closing. What did you do in that period of time leading up to sort of that closure and um, and everything that's happened in the world so far, in the last couple of years? Well, in the in dinner, dinner closed over quite a long period of time. It was it was several months before they finally shut the doors. And they did try and make some significant changes. Well, mostly one to the menu where they went from an a la carte menu to a full degustation menu. Um, they also tried to really, really keep a handle on our hours. But with the volume that we do and with the, with the volume that we did, sorry, and with the, of course, expectation and the standard that we still had to do, it was, it was, it was difficult because they, would, they shrank our hours, but we still had to get the same job done. Um, so it was it's just another it was just another level of pressure because it was like it's fine. We'll just come an hour earlier. They're like you can't. Sorry. <laughs> Too bad. Um, so yeah, it, it was it was it was hard. It was it was honestly I am so disappointed that restaurant closed. I wasn't ready for it to close. I wasn't finished learning yet from there. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was very it was very very disappointing. Heartbreaking even. The, the last two years have had an incredible impact on so many. What, what's it leading up to Edda? What, what has it been like for you, the impact of the pandemic? I was one of the very lucky ones. I was very fortunate because I had my parents' house to live in. I had my parents' home as well, and we had a very good relationship. Um, and because of that, I wasn't um, financially stressed out. So I do know that in terms of um, you know, compared to a lot of people who went through the pandemic, I was truly fine. Um, and because I had that safety net, um, I was able to think and spend a lot of time thinking that if my 
career of being a chef was no longer viable in this world or in a post-pandemic world, you know, what else could I do? And I thought about it, I thought about it, and I came to the conclusion that whatever I did, I really, really wanted to still work in food. And from what I could do from where I was sitting, that became writing. And I call up a friend of mine, um, Joanna, who is a fantastic illustrator, but she's also ex-hospo. She worked, used to work um, at the Fat Duck and then she worked at Dinner My Hester for a while, so that's how I met her. Um, she um, also was at home, you know, just waiting it out. And I was like, hey, do you want to just do a little zine of just like a couple of Chinese recipes um, and you just illustrate them and then we'll just print a couple and see if anybody cares? And she was like, yeah, that sounds great because we were both pretty bored. Um, and being, <laughs> being hospo perfectionists, um, as well, we ended up going way overboard, um, yeah. <laughs> but, um, the final result, which we actually, we did it, we wrote it in a week, but it was a week of no sleep. Um, it was editing, it was formatting, it was, you know, Joe was hand painting everything. Uh, we ended up getting it printed Stunning, 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 um, heavy card as well. Um, and it was, it was beautiful. And I ended up, we ended up selling the 20 copies we'd printed within like a few minutes to people who were like just friends of ours. And, and then we ended up getting picked up by the guardian about it because we started getting a bit of traction on our page and then we got picked up by Broadsheet and then we ended up being mentioned to the Good Food Guide and we printed a couple of different volumes of it as well. It was just a really lovely way of, one, passing the time, but two, having a really amazing creative outlet where Joe was drawing, I was writing, and I was taking photos on my iPhone and they were just ending up really lovely as well. But the whole thing was just such a great way to just to, you know, find a new niche, carve out a new niche for ourselves in a, you know, in a pandemic world. Did that experience change your perceptions or um, the way you approach uh, food? It really did because pre like prior to that, I was only cooking, you know, other people's food. I was cooking the food of the chefs that I had, you know, sought out to work with. And I'd never, you know, I'd never written a recipe formally before. I'd never cooked my own take on anything before. And I was, I, the first uh, the first edition was just basic Chinese cooking because I took it upon myself to after a risk, after quite a quite a lot of um, contact with a lot of people off my just my personal Instagram page asking me how to how I was cooking this this and this and this and how how to cook that and how to use a wok and I was like there's clearly a lot of people who are cooking at home who don't really know how to approach Asian foods or particularly Chinese food. And I was like, I have some base knowledge here being, you know, of the heritage, but also having worked in a Chinese kitchen. So I was like, you know what, I can, I'll take it upon myself and I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll write it up for you. And, you know, I'll write you some basic recipes, like how to cook rice, how to stir fry, how to stir fry properly, how to stir fry green vegetables, how to make a broth, all the really, the basic tenets of Chinese cooking. Um, instead of just seeing, you know, which is heartbreaking, seeing like stir fry sauce, you know, pre-cut stir-fried vegetables. I'm like, what is that? I don't even know what that is. Stir-fried strips. I'm like, guys, we can, this, this cuisine is, this is, this cuisine is, you know, it's, it's beautiful. It's ancient. It's, you know, it's precise and you have the time. I have the time. So let me show you. And that was, that was, that was the first, that was the first one. That was all basics. And the second one that we did was me just going full freestyle on my heritage. I, um, 
<laughs> I had, you know, I had Beijing hot chicken. I had a Sichuan fondue. I just went nuts, but it was, it was, um, <laughs> it was, and that one was a fully, fully colored. We embossed it in gold. We just went for it. And that was the second one. <laughs> and, um, it was, it was really from the second one that I came into my own and I figured out that that was how I expressed myself in food. It was just, you know, taking, taking the things that I love from my heritage and, you know, going for it <laughs> really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, when you landed the job at Etta, how did you approach the food given that the restaurant already existed there? You were finding your voice. It was a new role. What, what, what sort of, what did you do in those early stages in regards to the menu? So being a pre-existing restaurant meant that there were certain things on the menu that people, that the customers had, like they were always going there for. Um, and the, and this, the really good thing was that because there had already been two chefs before me that had already been basically solidified as the foundation of ETA and what had to always be there, which was really, really helpful because, you know, if you were like, if you're just told, all right, here's a restaurant, here's a menu, enjoy, love your life. Um, it's, it's, it's too much. It's too much. And, you know, you panic and you're like, oh my God, like, you know, what, which entree represents me? You know, what, <laughs> what meat do I like? Like, how do I cook that? You know, this, the whole thing is just, it's overwhelming. And ETA had not the foundation of the menu where there always had to be sourdough and there always had to be some sort of chicken on the menu, but there was also a wood fire. And that fire is basically the only source of heat that's in that kitchen. So there's a fire and there's two stoves and there's an oven. And so whatever happened or whatever you did, everything had to be informed by ember cooking or wood fire cooking. Which is also something that was another reason why I was like, absolutely not, Deta. <laughs> um, but um, having those, having that structure and also knowing that and having been somebody who is, who's grown up in Melbourne, who's dined in Melbourne and is very familiar with, you know, what people expect for wine-friendly dining, you know, you've got very specific style of eating. You've got your sharing style. You're always going to have oysters. You're always going to have some sort of a few cold dishes. You'll always have some sort of cheese curd. You know, we love, we love our burrata. We love the stracciatella in Melbourne. You know, you'll have a large format meat. You'll have lots of seasonal vegetables. You know, you have your sides. You'll have a couple of desserts. Always speaking of provenance, always speaking of season. And it was actually within that, you know, there were so many rules that I had to follow. Within that, it was quite easy just to, you know, flick a bit of my heritage through there. It was actually, um, I was actually really fortunate to have that structure in place. Really, really fortunate. How much has your food changed since that sort of early days t to now? Has there been an, quite an evolution now that you've got a handle on the position? Um, it actually just make, it made a lot more sense now because you could see from the beginning that there were um, there were less less conceived ideas, but there were it was it was run, there was already running through the menu that it was the direction that I was kind of leaning in. And I, I struggle to, and actually we all struggle in the restaurant to actually have a nice little soundbite of our style of cooking. And I thought, well, like, what are you cooking? Is it Asian? I'm like, not though. And like, is it Australian? I'm like, I guess, I guess it's very Melbourne, really. I don't really know what it is to be honest, but um, it's, it's definitely still, it definitely still follows that structure. We've still got bread, we've still got oysters, we've still got our cheese curds, we've still got our large format meats. You still order in, in groups of, you know, a couple of starters, couple of mains, you know, you can order it more if you like, you can snack, you can have a big meal, it's up to you. Um, it is, it's still, it's still 
unashamedly, it's ETA. It is ETA. It is the experience that you would have. It's you can experience it the way you always have, whereas the flavors have just been turned up to a million. <laughs> Do you have any examples of um, of dishes that you have on the menu at the moment that sort of typifies your cooking and that sort of structure that ETA has given you? Um, there's. Well, actually, this one dish that Hannah Green loves to keep saying that this is me on a plate, which is actually not the one that I would it, I would expect either. But it's just our um, it's our fried zucchini flour, um, and the sauce that I serve it with is it began as an almond tarotor, um, informed by when I I used to eat the one at Rumi down the road, and just it would just blow my mind. Um, and it started as a tarotor, and it ended up with. Um, Chinese fermented tofu. It's got silken tofu in it. It's got rice wine in it. So it's it's not really tarotor anymore, and it it it's still it's still got almond in it. But you know it's taken about fifteen steps in a different direction. Um, and then we've got a very classic uh, Sichuan chili oil that we make in house with um, you know four different kinds of dried chilies. Um, and we've got you know it takes a bit of time and quite a lot of work. And also if you eat it all together it's really aromatic because it's really aromatic of and it's really chinese tasting but then you've got this zucchini flower that's grown by our favorite farmers matt and joe from mushrooms anonymous you know so we get to talk about the provenance and i don't stuff it as well with trying to keep my labor costs down because i don't have time to stuff zucchini flowers so it's it's all <laughs> it's all um it's very me it's very me where it's, you look at it and you're like it's zucchini flower you know i know how to eat that i know what it is and you eat it and you're like what is that that's not, that's not Tarotor. That's not, that's not, that's not how you eat a zucchini flower. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's everything that we are. It's provenance, it's heritage, it's accessible, it's Melbourne, it's seasonal. Um, yeah, it's, that's probably, that's, yeah, I think that's, that's the dish. That's the most me, I suppose. <laughs> Hannah Green has created an amazing venue there. What's the working relationship like with you, with you and her? Hannah and I either describe ourselves as two peas in a pod or the terrible two. Um, we, <laughs> we, are, we get along so um, incredibly well. Um, and she really, she really trusts me, um, which is very, um, which is the most important thing for our relationship where I think because we've come from a very similar background of fine dining. And so we know that there are with all the small things and with our, with personal standard that we, we expect the same. We work the same way, but of course we are of this mindset where we we don't want to we don't want what came with fine dining to be in the restaurant. You know the stress, the pressure, the you know the prevalence of mental illness. We don't want that in the environment that we are dictating. And so you know we there's all of these things are unspoken, but they also I mean of course they are spoken about too. But the way that we work is so cohesive, and just the way that she to do basically whatever I want, but with respect to what the restaurant is, with the wine that we pour with our customers. Yeah, we've got a very um, we've got a very special relationship, Hannah and I. You're part of a, a really important sort of new wave uh, restaurant in the Melbourne landscape. Um, what, what, what is it that you love about what you do? I love that. I love the honesty in what we do at ETA as well. I love that we are all sort of building a new world because we have a, um, we've got, we have the platform, I think. And we've had, uh, because the industry has been through so much change, the industry is so supportive of 
you know, every restaurateur, every chef, every, you know, every wait staff, every sommelier that's within it. So the ability for us to progress, to move forward and to change and to make positive change in the industry is no time like the present to do it. And in, in a, in a, you know, if you look you know, two years ago, three years ago, you know, it's, the way that Melbourne dined was very well dictated the way that, you know, the world dined was very much, you know, not even so much that it was a boys club per se, because that isn't necessarily the case, but just the way that people expected to experience or have dining experiences versus now where you've got, you know, you've got customers who are just so beautiful and because they're just happy to be out, you know, they're happy to be out to support their, support their local restaurants, to go out and eat, to explore new dining experiences. We're in a really special time where everyone's just really accepting and really when receiving everything so well. So it, it, we're very, definitely. Well, Rasheen, it's been an honor to have you on Deep in the Weed today to hear a part of your story. And I know there's so much more of it to come. You're just getting started, really. Um, please keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.